I had a great conversation with Kevin Sadage from the Marine Somalia Veterans Association. Operation Restore Hope is something we don't hear too much about in the Marine Corps. December 9th is the 30th anniversary of the 15th MU performing an unopposed amphibious assault on Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia. So when Kevin and Michael Young from the MSVA reached out to me, I was excited to jump on the phone and have this conversation. We touched on the history of Somalia a little during this episode, but here is a brief timeline of events to lay the framework for the operation. In 1960, Somalia gained its independence from Italy and Somaliland from Britain. These two territories combined and formed the Republic of Somalia. Nine years later, the Somali army launched a coup, and Mohamed Siad Bari became the country's dictator. Somalia consists of multiple clans, and when Bari took over, he favored his own. This caused the other clans to push back, and when 1990 rolled around, they unified and launched a civil war. In January 1991, the country's dictator was forced out of Mogadishu, leaving the country without a functional government. The intense fighting between the warlords interfered with food and supplies to the locals, and on November 25, 1992, President Bush announced to the UN that the U.S. was prepared to provide military forces to help deliver food and supplies to the war-torn country. The United Nations unanimously passed Resolution 794, which authorized military interventions in Somalia. This was the first time in history that the UN decided to intervene without receiving a request from the country's government. The U.S. task force's concept of operation had four phases. The first was to establish a base of operations and logistics in Mogadishu, to gain control over the flow and humanitarian relief supplies through the city. Marines landed on December 9th to accomplish the first phase, but they were met by many reporters. The footage is pretty interesting. The Marines were notably annoyed by them being there, but the bright side is we have the landing documented. I'll post a few of these videos on our social media sites. Phase 2 provided for the expansion of operations at the major interior relief distribution sites. Phase 3 expanded these operations through additional ports and airfields, and the final phase transitioned the operation from U.S.-led to U.N.-led. Kevin served in the Marine Corps from 1989 to 1993, and he traveled throughout the globe while he was in, including participating in Operation Restore Hope. In 2011, he co-founded the Marine Somalia Veterans Association, which has over 2,000 members. The association serves as a place of fellowship and support for members who served in Somalia and is a repository of the history of their experiences. Membership is open to all Marines and FMF corpsmen who served in the Horn of Africa during Operations Restore Hope, Continue Hope, the Global War on Terrorism, and Embassy Duty in Every Era. Membership is free, so if this is you, check them out. I'll post links in the podcast description. Now on to the show. So welcome everyone. We're changing the format a bit for this episode. 
I have Kevin Sadage from the Marine Somalia Veterans Association with me today, and we're going to talk about Operation Restore Hope. So thanks for coming on, Kevin. I really thank you for your interest today. I really appreciate it. We're coming up on our 30th anniversary of our involvement over there, and we thought it would be a great opportunity to reach out to folks to see who else is interested in it. Yeah, yeah. So like we were we were talking about this before we started recording. And as I mentioned, I'm, I wasn't really I wasn't aware of an association for Marine Somalia veterans. And this was exciting to me. Right. So I look forward to our conversation. We thank you so very much. Uh, you know, uh, several years ago, um, I was online with uh, another Somalia veteran, uh, Scott McQuarrie, uh, a guy that I did not serve with, but I, I met him through some Marine Corps circles. And uh, we were talking about the Beirut veterans and the, the Vietnam veterans. They all had their own little niche and their own their own clubs. But, you know, no one really understood our jokes and what our experiences specific to Somalia were. So we just did like everyone else on Facebook and we started our own page. And before you knew it, we had a we had a regular association and, and a group of guys and we continue to grow uh, 11 years later. That's fantastic, right? There's a lot of these smaller humanitarian missions or operations that take place all over, all over the world that you really don't hear about, right? And Somalia is one of those operations or humanitarian missions um, that doesn't get a, a lot of recognition, right? So it's, it was a big part of Marine history during the time, during the early 90s. It was kind of overshadowed by Desert Shield, Desert Storm. There's a lot of history there, right? And it's a it's a fascinating story. Um, but before we get into all that, why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your time in the Marine Corps? Anything else you want to share? For sure. Uh, just like a lot of guys in the Marine Corps, I, I was young, just out of high school with a chip on my shoulder. So the Marine Corps was a great place for someone like me. Um, I'd always wanted to do it. Um, all the men and many of the women in my family were in the military. So it was a uh, something that was, wasn't was out of the, the sphere of what I would envision what my life would be like. Um, my dad was in World War II in the Korean War, and, um, you know, I've had grandfathers going back to the revolution uh, in military service. So it was something that I, um, you know, thought I would always do, and I made that a reality. Um, I was an open contract, so I was wow. at the, the, you know, I was at the mercy of the Marine Corps. Uh, I became a, a scout forward observer, um, something I'd never even heard of. Um, so I spent a lot of my time in artillery units and infantry units, um, you know, doing indirect fire missions and, and um, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, uh, we found ourselves in Somalia um, as an infantry, uh, provisional infantry re uh, battalion. We were um, 3rd Battalion, 11th Marines, which is a, um, artillery regiment or battalion, I'm sorry. Um, and then they sent us over there as a, a provisional infantry, which is sort of the whole old adage of every Marine, a rifleman. Um, that's sort of, we bear, you know, bore witness to that. Yeah. Yeah. So actually I was with 11th Marines from, uh, from 2001 to 2003. Yeah. So the cannon cockers. Uh, in World War One, the 11th Marines were known as infantillery because they were the whole 11th Marine Regiment was taken and they were they were assigned as an infantry regiment for World War One in France. Right. So I think they were only there for a few months. 
but yeah, it's <laughs> they turned the whole regiment into infantry. I I love that word, infantillery. That is awesome. I that's going to be part of my new vocabulary. I love that word. That's what we were, you know, guys, guys be, that were, you know, O one admins um, were fire team leaders and and um, you know just regular infantry. Um, you know, carrying around grenades and machine guns through the streets of Mogadishu. And, you know, they, they kicked ass. That was, a, that's a big part of it. I think that's something that's, uh, it doesn't get enough recognition as it deserves, right? People, I was just having this conversation yesterday, uh, with someone about every Marine's a rifleman, right? They kind yeah. of scoffed at the idea, but there is, there is value in it. There, there oh, is, yeah. there is a long history of, uh, MOS is other than infantry serving as infantry and doing phenomenal things, right? So absolutely chosen reservoir and, um, you know, all the way to Mogadishu. They, they did it. They stepped up, you know, and, and I've, I've interviewed a couple of people, uh, some old commanders and, and just, uh, you know, regular, uh, Marines, um, that served in, uh, eras around the late eighties, early nineties. And they tell me that, um, uh, the development of Marine combat training uh, after boot camp was a very important aspect uh, for our success in Somalia because there were, uh, you know, Marines that weren't specifically trained as grunts, but they knew they knew some of the basics. And yeah. um, I think that really that really was an improvement. I, I don't know what it was like before MCT because I was one of the first groups to go through it. But um, I've had guys tell me that uh, it was they, they noticed a difference. Marine Corps training is it's relatively new, right? So uh, trying to think back, I, yeah. I think it was during World War One. That's when they started implementing these additional trainings, right? So they stood up, um, yeah, the okay. Marine Corps Institute and like, all these uh, MCIs that we laugh about, uh, MCT and SOI. So yeah, right. before everything was done in boot camp, and uh, before that, you were lucky even to get, get training like that in boot camp. So it's there's definitely value for in sure, that. for sure. So Somalia. So how long were you in before you received word that you were being deployed to Africa? I personally had been in for about three years. So I, I was kind of fucking over the Marine Corps at the time. I, I knew I wasn't going to stay in. Uh, I had enough MREs. I, I, you know, I traveled quite a bit, um, you know, to some good places and some not so fun places. Uh, I did not participate in the Gulf War. Uh, and one of the reasons I joined being a dumb kid is I, I really wanted to go to a war. Uh, I had no idea what I was, what I was getting into or, you know, but you're just a, a naive kid. You think you want to be a, a, you know, a hero or whatever, but you know, I wanted my money's worth. And so one of the, the positive things, I guess, for my mind back then was, Hey, I'm doing something real. You know, I spent, uh, three years, uh, training and everything was, um, hypothetical. And, and finally we were getting to do something what I joined to do. At least it was, it was a humanitarian mission. Um, so, you know, I had pretty good spirits going over there. Um, I think a lot of us had, had that spirit that, uh, it is a humanitarian mission in, in a war torn country. And, you know, we were, we were sort of loaded for bear, but we thought we were going to really go to help people. And I think a lot of the guys that I was around, um, really had that genuine desire to, hey, let's, you know, we're, we're in the Marine Corps. Um, and if this is how they want to use it, let's, let's try to help people. You know, uh, maybe we didn't put it in those exact words. I mean, I'm 50, over 50 now, but kind of that same general ideas, you know, let's, let's do something 
for someone else. Uh, so that's how we sort of approached it over there. Um, you know, in the years since, uh, I've studied parts of the, the, uh, the operation and I've matured and, you know, read about military history and things like that. So I have a little bit more of an understanding of what, what our mission was. But at the time, it was as simple as let's try to protect people so we can help them. And then we went over there. Yeah, that's another thing that's overlooked, right? The Marine Corps has a lot of these humanitarian missions under their belt. Even myself, I went to East Timor, Indonesia in 1999 when that genocide was happening oh. there. So there was, yeah, just jumped on the USS Bellawood and headed to East Timor. Um, but the same thing, right? You're, I was 19 years old, didn't know what the hell was yep. going on. Uh, just yep. jumped on a ship and, and went. Yeah, I, I was, I, I was genuinely, Glad to be able to finally do something. Um, it, you know, it's kind of weird. Um, you know, I, I hear about, um, you know, just some of these stories or even my dad talking about World War II. Um, he was in the Pacific theater and, and, uh, just this idea of, um, you know, Guadalcanal or Tarawa. I mean, they're, they're, they're names they literally never ever heard before. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing with us. It wasn't like we were going to, France or somewhere we all heard of, we were going to a place called Somalia. We had absolutely no idea wh where it was, for one. And two, what was it like? You know, ex absolutely no conception. So it was kind of a an old school thing in that respect to go to a place like Somalia because it, it's so far out of the, sh the sphere of what our realities were at that time in our lives. Yeah, especially a place like Somalia. So just so there's two territories from it, right? So you have Somalia, which gained its independence from Italy in 1960. And then you have Somaliland, yep. which sounds like a horrible theme park, right? right. That was, that gained their independence from yeah. Britain around the same yes. time, right? And those two areas formed Somalia, right? And then just throughout the years, they had nothing but turmoil, right? Nine years after their independence, they, the Somali army launched a coup and gained power. Yes. Um, and, and from there, that's when all the clans start. So the, the dictator who was put in charge, uh, Mohammed Saeed Bari, I believe his name Correct. was, yeah, he just, uh, he, he favored his own yeah. clan and all these other clans started fighting within and resisting his, his dictatorship. And that's where that civil war came from. Absolutely. Right? It led up to the nineties where, where you guys came in. You know, it was, uh, you know, when, when, uh, Barr came into, um, power, it was, Literally a downhill slide for the country uh, from that moment that he took power in 1969. I mean, it, it, he was, like you say, he was embroiled in, in you know, clan preferential treatment. And he, uh, you know, he had some, um, uh, he, there was a war with, with Ethiopia in, in, in the late 70s. Um, you know, so it wasn't it wasn't completely a, a great thing for him to be in charge of the country at the time obviously i'm not an expert and i don't know all the intricacies of it all but definitely we're we're talking about a, a country and a civilization that was not mature you know in the sense of where we yeah. were you know in in the the somali language um it wasn't even in it wasn't even developed as a written form until 1971 so you know, things like that, uh, common literature, or, you know, it wasn't, we didn't, they didn't have that like we have in the Western world. Um, so 
obviously I did not have any conception of this as a, as a 20, 21 year old going over there. But, uh, you know, as I think back on it, uh, those were some challenges that we had. You know, the people that we're interacting with have their whole lives have been in this system. You know, we're talking about, uh, 92, 93. So, uh, you know, young adults that this is all they knew. I didn't know that about their language. That is fascinating, especially in this, this time period, right? You never think in. Yes. When <laughs> the 2000s, 19, uh, whatever, right? The late yeah. 1900s, you never, you would have thought that wouldn't have existed. There wouldn't have yeah. been any more civilizations like that. But that's, that's crazy to think about. Absolutely nuts. I, I don't know anything about, um, uh, how did the language develop? All I know is there's a lot of X's in it. <laughs> <laughs> when did you actually deploy to Somalia? So the, the De- December 9th is when, uh, the, U.S. landed in Mogadishu after the U.N. resolution was, was, um, you know, put forth. We, uh, we got there, uh, 311, 3rd Battalion, 11th Marines, um, started going over there just before the new year. So like tw- the 26th, 27th, I got there on the 31st of December of 92. So, uh, it was like a 39 hour flight. It was awful. Uh, couldn't get out of the plane. Um, Actually, they ended up changing one of our uh, uh, engines in New York. Mm. You talk about unnerving. I'm a guy that does not like to fly. <laughs> and to see them literally pull an engine off the wing and put a new one on, it just it was all I could take, you know. But uh, we got over there at, at um, just before sundown. We got, you know, we we, we flew, flew in and uh, we saw the, uh, you know, the sun going down and, and uh, they got us off the plane, and uh, I would say in a half hour of us landing, they had us in a um, they had us sequestered under some kind of rudimentary uh, building, and they issued us a shitload of, of ammunition. I mean, we filled up all of our magazines, and uh, the guy that was handing out the uh, the ammunition, he said that they had a um, there was a big battle in the town the previous night and it really got my attention you know and he said yeah they were um they were shooting there were two clans were shooting uh 155 millimeter howitzers at each other in the city i'm like whoa what are we getting into over here you know i mean you know this is when this is when it started to, to you know change in my mind like you know i know we were going to a dangerous area but you know we're in a fucking humanitarian mission and they're, they're giving us everything, you know? So it was, it got me, it got me a little more worried, you know? They just had us, uh, staying in the, uh, the airport compound and it was really exciting. Um, the next day, uh, I don't remember a lot of the details cause we're, you know, we're talking about 30 years now, but, um, I do remember just the, the massive amount of activity, you know, it was a, uh, former international airport, uh, a long runway, you know, a, a substantial runway. And, you know, there were Air Force planes and all kinds of multinational planes landing literally every 10 minutes. I mean, it was very exciting to see that much activity going on, you know, and, and, uh, you know, supplies being unloaded. I mean, just massive amounts. And to be a part of something like that was really exciting, you know, to be one small part of it. A couple of things on that one, right? So 
The artillery is a big one. So th- they call it a humanitarian mission, but these factions were armed, right? They, I believe there were around 50,000 of them. They had artillery, they had tanks, they had armored personal carriers. So it wasn't just your normal insurgent with the AK-47. These these guys had some right. serious weapons. And and they were they knew how to use it. I mean, the 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 national sport of Somalia is war. Yeah. You know, it's not soccer, it's war. So I mean, these people had been They've been doing it for their whole lives, you know. Yeah, every male was armed or is armed. Yeah, yeah. One of the problems, I didn't see it too much when I got there, um, but there was uh, these technicals. A lot of your a lot of your um, subscribers will know that because they're, they're interested in military themes. But, you know, these Toyota pickup trucks with a, you know, a 37 millimeter, uh, you know, AAA machine gun or a you know a 7.62 a machine gun on the back of it and they terrorized those those areas our orders at the time were we could fire on technicals it was the, the the assumption that they were they weren't protecting their house or anything like that they were they were aggressors um, i never participated in um uh capturing or you know neutralizing a, a technical but they were around they were just starting to go underground when we got there because a few of them had lost against the Marines um, by showing their faces. Yeah. And and just to touch on your, the the landing you mentioned uh, earlier, that was a debacle as well. I I remember not by the Marines. So the, the Marines, they did what they needed to do, but they were welcomed by hundreds of reporters, right? So when they were making their amphibious landing, there were lights shining at them. And at first they didn't know what the heck, right you know what the fuck are these lights but it turns out that they were reporters so just all these these news media outlets were out there recording the marines and as they were rushing towards uh i believe it was the airport to secure the airport they were asking them questions right trying to to ask questions and you could still see these interviews on youtube which is amazing so there was one i watched the other day where this marine was kind of pissed off right (laughs) oh yeah he saw these yeah, you saw these, uh, they were, they interviewed him in the middle of, uh, when they were in, they were landing and he was essentially just telling them off, right? So I, I'll post that video just so everyone could see because it's pretty entertaining. The, the other, the other thing that, um, wasn't lost on me at the time was that on that day, December 9th, I was sitting in the barracks drinking beer with all my guys from my platoon watching it. And, you know, we weren't sure we were actually going over at that, on that day. Uh, we were getting our stuff ready and they were telling us we're going and then an hour later, not that kind of thing. And, uh, so as I, as I, you know, retrospect this many years later, and I thought, how many guys ever got to see on TV the landing of an operation that they would later take part in? I mean, because we were only there a couple of days, a couple of weeks later. And it was just kind of an obtuse situation to think that you could sit at home in the United States drinking beer and watch the same landing. And then a couple of weeks later, you're there. Uh, I just thought that was odd. I was just going to bring that up. That must've been a surreal experience. It, it really was. My, my conception was, you know, raised, uh, you know, raised around these world war two guys mostly. Um, but some of the Vietnam guys it wouldn't have even been in their, in their mind. You know, I mean, they were all letters and radio dispatches and all that stuff. So, it was kind of, yeah, it was an odd thing to, to think about. When we got there, um, 
it was, we were all excited for the first day or two. Everything was new. And some of the guys that were in our platoon uh, were kind of boots. You know, they'd only been in the Marines a few months, you know, so it was really, really exciting for them. Um, but, you know, we got a chance to walk around the, the airport compound a little bit before they started organizing us in the platoons, really. I mean, we, you know, as an artillery unit, you know, we were, um, we were a headquarters battery, so it was a lot of the comm people and admin and then people like me, FOs, that didn't have a home, really, uh, unless they were out, out with an infantry unit. Uh, so they just sort of split us all up and assigned us into platoons in, within a few days. But in the meantime, before they kind of got that organized, we were we spent a lot of time uh, filling and digging, digging uh, fighting holes and filling sandbags and I mean, shit like I never worked in my life, and I and I and I haven't forgotten to the, to this day. Um, we had to dig a bomb shelter next to where we had a bunch of um, I don't know if a bomb shelter is the right word, but but some kind of uh, reinforced bunker, and it was all sandy, you know, because we weren't far from the beach, and you know, it kept on you know filling in and stuff. And I just remember we filled hundreds of sandbags, and we would have to. Uh, carry him up to the roof of a building that our our unit you know, took over, and we did that for like six hours. You know, just you, you'd get a couple sandbags and you'd put them on each shoulder, and then you'd carry them up three flights of stairs. Anyone that's never done that, you you probably have done it, but a lot of civilians have never done anything like that. And it's, I tell you, it was it was backbreaking. And the, and there wasn't showers at that time, so. You know, we were we were just nasty, you know, and and this is where this is where some of the, the basic Marine Corps, you know, boot camp shit comes out is, you know, a field, a field bath, you know, stuff like that that we had learned uh, sort of became second nature. You know, um, I don't know if, if you went to boot camp in a PI or San Diego, but in San Diego, San Diego. you did too. OK, so we, we washed our own clothes uh, with with a wash, you know, wash basin. Uh, that's what we did over in Somalia, you know, um, shit like that, that kind of comes back to you. Um, it, it's amazing how that, uh, that training kicked in and, and it wasn't just the little shit like that. It was actually later on as we started getting into patrols that the real, I think, value of our training came through. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of those little things, right? So it- when you're growing up in the core, you think they're bullshit. Yeah. Uh, you don't understand the purpose. But I mean, for me personally, the more I learn about Marine Corps history and the more I understand why we do some of these things, it yep. makes sense, right? And that, that laundry one is a big one. Hygiene is a big one. Yeah. Um, so the, these little lessons that they teach you in, in boot camp that you think are bullshit, they have, they have purposes, yeah. right? And absolutely. Yeah. That's a good example. I, ne- I never got dysentery over there. If I, I mean, I've, if there was a place to get dysentery, it was there. Uh, I, d- I don't recall ever being sick, you know. Um, so things like that worked. And, and you know, the, the, the funny thing about that, because, you know, I went to Panama and stuff, and I got the, you know, I got dysentery down there. Um, but, you know, Somalia, the place smelled like death. If you know the smell of a dead body, it smelled like fucking dead bodies. And, and that's because that's what, what was there. They, they, they weren't buried properly. They were in the streets or in a house or they were just all over the place. 
And then you have the, the added, um, you know, problem is because of the Civil War, the plumbing and things like that and the, the services were not functioning for years. So there were outhouses with piles of shit overflowing in dead bodies. And what I'm trying to get to is when you were eating, you would literally have to con constantly swat in front of your food. Because if a fly got on it, I, I wasn't eating it. Just little things like that that, you know, we all kind of joke about it. And that's one of the things about having our, our association is we can sort of joke about those kinds of things with each other because we, we all know where we're coming from when it comes to that. But, yeah, the the flies were literally probably just on, on a dead body. So you had to swat them off. I've shared stories with guys. Um, I've made some real friendships in our association and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk on the phone or, or guys will post something up and, you know, um, you know, it seems like every third guy has a story about digging a fighting hole and, you know, getting a body because it's, you know, only a, a foot under the, the dirt, you know, I mean, so we experience those kinds of things. And, you know, for someone like me, I, I wasn't necessarily right off the farm, so to speak, but, um, you know, I hadn't been in the Gulf War or, you know, hadn't been in Vietnam like some of our senior enlisted guys. So seeing a dead person that had been killed or just died of starvation was, uh, you know, kind of profound to me. I didn't know, didn't put it in those words at the time, but, you know, seeing something like that was uh, hard. So having this group where we can talk about those kinds of things, um, it helps. People come back from war and they see shit. Um, having that support, someone you could talk to, someone you could, someone who, who experienced the same things as you is big. Yeah. It's, it's big to just to talk it through. Yeah. Good. To, it's, it's good that you have that. It's good that the Somalia Marines have that. Yeah, for sure. We're, we're, we're very fortunate. We got a, a really good group and, and, uh, you know, uh, we have some general things that were, were common to a lot of our experiences. And some guys have had, you know, personal experiences were, you know, they had to kill someone or, you know, they had to, you know, do something maybe not everyone had done, but, you know, they can share those kinds of stories. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the time over there was, uh, was, was short in, in the, the war history of our country. I mean, we were, we were there essentially from the beginning in 93 to, to having some involvement till 1995. So it wasn't a, it wasn't something that was a generation. Um, of men like Vietnam or, or, or women, um, or World War II. Um, but it was, it was, it was important because it was our experience. It was what, what we had. Um, and, you know, we want to preserve that memory. Um, you know, we, a lot of us gave a piece of ourselves to that place or to our country in the service of Somalia. And, um, you know, what it was no less than the guys did did World War II or, you know, we, we still, we still did something for our country, you know, and so we want to keep that alive and, and, uh, you know, we're, we're patriotic. Uh, we have, uh, uh, a lot of men that are still very proud of their service. We've got a few women, um, that there and they're likewise, uh, just every bit of proud of their service too. So why not have a group where we can, um, you know, celebrate that. People hear the word humanitarian and they think peaceful, right? But that's absolutely not the case, um, especially with Somalia, right? Two Marines were killed there. Yeah. There were, I'm not sure how many service members, but for Marines, 
There were two were killed and 15 were wounded in action. So it, it wasn't peaceful in, in the way you would think something peaceful is. There was, it was violent. It was very violent. Marines died. You guys got shot at. Uh, the patrols at night were a big issue. Um, did you have to go on patrols while you were there? We did. Uh, we had a, a just an exhausting schedule of patrol, um, uh, guard duty, and then, uh, you know, if there was a raid or something, you have to do that and then still pick up your regular amount of patrols. We, we ended up um, eventually moving out into the city. Um, our task force and then specifically our battalion took over strategic spots in the city, like a house or a, or a, a building where we would run patrols from. So we, my platoon ended up at a place called Checkpoint 16, which was directly due west of the airport by about a mile. Um, I think I've seen it on Google Maps. I'm not quite sure, but it was a probably if it was in California, it'd be a beautiful multi-million dollar house, stucco. Um, it had the uh, uh, barbed wire of the third world, which was uh, a high wall with, with glass stuck to the top. Uh, we would do our patrols out of there, and we did do night patrols. I remember one particular uh, moment. Um, uh, I was a squad leader for a while, and what we would do is um, one guy had to do radio watch. So everyone did radio watch. It was kind of like a break. You know, you didn't have to do your, your guard duty. You could just do radio watch inside for that one shift. And it just so happens that that one night there was a big firefight in the compound. And we're talking about a uh, a compound that's really maybe a third of an acre. I mean, just a small suburban style house. So compound, I don't mean something large. So it was just a walled a house with a wall around it. And there was a firefight that night. And I remember just machine guns blazing away from our position. And... I don't, no one got hurt on our side, but I remember uh, our guard duty was just coming off shift and some asshole, probably the fucking lieutenant, sorry, pardon my language, but he's <laughs> like, you got to go out, you got to go out and look for blood trails. And, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of night patrols. It was, you know, maybe every, every few nights you'd do one. So we, we didn't do a whole lot of them, but uh, that was about as close as I ever come from disobeying an order. I, I was probably the most scared of my life because I, I did not participate in this action. I was inside. Um, I did respond to it a little bit uh, when I went out, but um, they said, yeah, go out and look for blood trails. It was a, I mean, it was a moonless night. There was nothing out there. I, I did not know how we were going to see anything. So we had to go on a patrol and uh, they said, you know, I don't remember exactly what it was, but basically do a, you know, go to this street, turn right, basically just doing a, a block. And uh, so every once in a while we had to stop and listen or, or something like that. And, you know, we weren't able to use flashlights, so I'm not sure how we were supposed to look for blood trails. But I was kind of proud that um, there was a couple times where we were um, listening you know, we were all completely silent. It was our whole squad, so maybe 10 or 11 of us. A couple of times people walked by us, Somalians, 
and I don't think they knew we were there. So I, I was kind of proud that we could pull that off. Um, but we, we just did our bare minimum, you know, walking around and right back to the fucking compound. I, I was really scared. But the thing that, um, uh, the thing that was weird about that situation and a lot of Marines, you know, you can, you can, um, you know what that feels like to be scared in, in a situation like that. But, uh, you know, once you got out there, you sort of forget about the, the nerves and stuff. Um, but that, that was an experience, uh, to have to go out on a patrol with that level of darkness, you know, um, you know, there were other times, uh, when we would do a patrol when, we knew it was going to be a, be a hostile situation. Um, you know, whether it was the beginning of Ramadan, um, or, you know, there was some policy, policy shift or something that the Somalis were upset with, with us about. I, I don't remember anything specific offhand, but there was a few times where we encountered, um, roadblocks and burning tires along our patrol routes. And, um, you know, it was, I guess, difficult to have to go out and stuff like that. That's tough. So I, I would imagine the patrols in no lights. I'm not sure how you look for a blood trail without any lights. Uh, that's got to be tough. Hiding from those Somalis that passed you when you were on patrol or just them not detecting you. Yeah. Yeah. We were just laying in the street. You know, it was a, a large, a large street. And uh, I do remember, though, the Somalis shit everywhere. So, you know, there was, you had about a 50-50 chance about, you know, getting into someone's turd. <laughs> that, I don't think it ever happened to me, but, uh, yeah, it was, it, you know, the, the other thing doing those day patrols, it was oppressively hot. Yeah, I don't know what the, the average temperature is in Somali. Uh, Somalia is in the early, you know, January to April, May, uh, re, re, you know, region is, but, uh, it, it was over a hundred degrees, you know, and, uh, I just remember those patrols. It was just so fucking hot. I mean, just ridiculous. We we would smell our, our sweat would smell like chlorine because of the the water bowls was so heavily chlorinated. Um, but you know, we had uh, we had a really good record. The the um, our battalion commander was a himself a Vietnam veteran enlisted. Um, I, you know, he really cared about his troops. Uh, I think that whatever our commanders were told about ensuring that we had, uh, you know, sort of, um, just in time training to do patrols was effective. Um, you know, I don't recall any, um, major instances of, uh, Marines abusing Somalis. Uh, or anything, you know, uh, like that. Uh, maybe it did happen, but I don't recall that it happened within our, within our specific battalion. You know, disciplined, you know, uh, young Marines and, um, they did their job. You know, we, we ended up, uh, spending a lot of our time, at least the first couple months doing raids. So we would go to a, a market or a, a part of town and, and we would just take weapons off the street. And, uh, you know, uh, I remember our first patrol going off out of the compound. We, we discovered a, a, a landmine on the ground on our trail. And, uh, you know, we were on our way to go to a raid and take, you know, weapons out of, out of this compound. And we, we took 
you know, hundreds of weapons. Just our, our, our squad, you know, took hundreds of weapons, not to mention the whole combined task force with, with the seventh Marines and 11th Marines that were there initially. Um, I, I took a beautiful Thompson submachine gun. Oh, no, a machine gun, uh, out of raid. And, uh, I was so tempted. I was so tempted to take that thing back. That would have been a nice souvenir. Would have been a great souvenir. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, we, we have some pictures on our, um, uh, Somalia, uh, website, our Marine Somalia Veterans Association website. Uh, you know, guys have shared photos and of, weapons they confiscated and things like that so it was uh, interesting that that's another that's another big one right the weapons confiscations when when it first happened right when 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 the discussion was being had about confiscating these weapons there was there was pushback right because there was a legitimate threat from bandits yeah uh, coming in and, and essentially assaulting these factions right so there was the the decision was made to allow certain groups to keep their weapons right so the the militia was allowed to keep their their weapons and some and i think the u.s started issuing like permits like these these cards to um to that's that states you were allowed to hold this weapon exactly um yeah how'd that work for you because i think that the first the first version of this card they were pink cards but they didn't have a picture and yeah. then the, the the people who weren't authorized to carry these weapons were just they were just faking these cards right they were coming up with counterfeit cards yeah so they changed them to blue cards with pictures but that must have been a whole pain in the ass for you guys just searching and yeah trying to get these with these cards it it was um for for us we we confiscated first and then asked questions um, you know, we would come, you know, if, you know, one scenario is we'd be at the, the gate of our compound or, or a compound that we were guarding. And, you know, if it was, uh, someone that had legitimate business, um, like a, a clan, a clan leader or something like that, they would have a bodyguard with them. And, and, uh, you know, we made sure that we disarmed them while they were, you know, on our premises or, or during their business. And, you know, unless they had a lot of weapons on them, you know, we would usually let them keep keep a weapon. Uh, but when we were on raids, you know, um, within the community or, or at, a, at, a, at a hospital compound, we took what we found. And we, we would, you know, as a historian, you would appreciate this. Um, you know, we, we were taking MG42s and, you know, uh, M1 Garands and, you know, all manner of 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 weaponry from various eras even a blunder blunderbuss oh really <laughs> i mean <That's> crazy <laughs> just you know crazy stuff and um you know I, I i didn't know what they were at the time but as i as i look back at some of these pictures i said oh man it was an mg42 it was still in service you know a, a german era a world war ii weapon so um yeah i mean we, we and then you know things like mortars we would I remember this one house we had encountered and, you know, like, lady, what the fuck do you got all these mortars for? It's not home protection. You know, they don't speak English, but, uh, you know, we're handling it's the other thing that's kind of funny is, uh, I saw these, these images from the Iraq war of guys, you know, they would discover an arms cache and they'd have, you know, um, EOD coming and 
you know, kid glove them. We, we were just pulling these things off, you know, piling mortar rounds out and probably most more out of ignorance. Um, but, uh, it's just funny the amount of stuff that we took off the street. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was very interesting, uh, to go back and look at some of those photos. Yeah. I don't think that gets enough appreciation, right? So it, for you guys in Somalia, even for the Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's, yeah. it's not your traditional war, right? It's not like World War One. You see an enemy, you shoot and that's yeah. it. You have, you have to be a diplomat. You yeah. have to be a statesman, right? And that's, that's tough for someone in the profession of war, right? So it's, I don't think that gets enough recognition or appreciation, yeah. but that's, that's something that, that needs to be accredited to young Marines, man. Like, like you said, 19, 20 year old guys yeah. going out to war expecting to, to do all this, right? Well, their, their life is on the line. So, so very hard to do, especially when you're talking about a, uh, a, a Marine who's 19 years old, you know, uh, that just that empathy is, is usually not there in someone that age. Uh, but, it, but it always came through. Not always, but there was exceptions, but it did come through. Uh, I remember our squad leader, uh, shout out to Sergeant Mark Tennyson, if you're listening. Great guy. Uh, he would tell us, Hey, we're going on, on a patrol. It's a PR patrol. You're going to wave. We're going to shake hands. Uh, you know, try to have your weapon as relaxed as you can and just smile. And he was a great, he was a great role model for us. He was a, uh, you know, older than us, you know, maybe 10 years older than us. And he genuinely smiled. He really genuinely enjoyed the kids and things like that. And that, that rubbed off a little bit on us, you know, and I, I learned a valuable lesson, um, you know, working under him that, uh, you know, we don't have to just be tough guys. We can be compassionate people, you know, and, and I, I really think that he, he was genuine about it. Uh, and that definitely did rub off on us uh, because there were, there were instances, I remember one time, uh, we had done a raid and, uh, you know, without getting into a whole bunch of details, it was at a compound, uh, not a house, it was at a, at a building. And, uh, I, I came, uh, we were looking through, you know, clearing a building and, you know, opening doors. And, um, I remember I came around a corner and there was a woman there and I, I was very close to shooting her because I, it was dark. She surprised me. She didn't really need to be in there. And she had a, her, she was holding her baby that was dead. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I handled it the best, you know, cause we were, we had a lot of other things that we were trying to accomplish that day. But, um, you know, seeing Sergeant Tennyson's, um, compassion for people allowed me to at least be gentle with her. I didn't, you know, have to yell at her or anything like that. I, I remember um, kind of guiding her out and stuff like that. But um, I, I thought many times about that instance and, um, you know, it could have been, uh, I, I could have been an asshole about it or whatever, you know, um, uh, we're, we're, we're forced to encounter situations like that in a, in a, in a deployment like that, that you're just completely unprepared for especially as a young man. Sergeant Tennyson, that's uh, just hearing what you have to say about him. He was, uh, that's, that's a leader, right? Yeah. That is not an easy position to be in, right? The compassionate 
leader in yeah. a war torn environment. One of the one of the comments I receive a lot is uh, from these younger Marines who talk about why don't we just, we have the superior firepower, right? Why don't we just go in there, tell them how it's going to be, and and do it our way, right? Sure. Just we'll just go in there with force and and make them do things yeah. the way we want them to do it. And the problem with that is the, the Marine Corps tried this before. This was popular during the banana wars in Haiti and Nicaragua and all, all those countries. And what ended up happening is those actions would create more insurgents and those insurgents would mean more dead Marines. That compassion is, it's everything. Just a little bit of compassion, it stops further insurgents from building up. It, it limits the number of insurgents, which limits the number of dead Marines. Sergeant Tennyson was onto something, right? So he, he understood and that, that can, that compassion is big. And just with you, just facing that woman with her dead baby, that could have ended in a totally different way. Yeah. At, at minimum, uh, a deep resentment that would never go away. You know, uh, I, I think that, um, the thing that worked about Sergeant Tennyson, he was, he was without exception, uh, beloved by our squad. Uh, I think, I think it was his combination of his time in the Corps. He'd, he'd been in about 10 years at the time. Uh, he had a family, so he knew what real life was like. And, um, and he was intelligent. And, you know, I think, and also, you know, I didn't know him deeply personally, but probably also a sensitive person. Um, but could kick ass because I saw him kick ass. Um, so all those combinations, he was kind of like, uh, I don't want to say the perfect NCO, but a very fucking good one. Yeah. There were guys in that platoon that had um, squad leaders uh, only because the guy had the rank because he had the time and grade or something, just complete shit bags. Uh, so we, we were really lucky to have him. Yeah. Yeah. Those shit bags, they, they go back since the beginning of the core. They do. They go back to the, 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 they go back to the Roman legions, you know, uh, you know, Commodius, who was the, the, uh, the emperor for 13 years. He, he had had some military, uh, background too. Complete fucking shit bag. So, <laughs> but the big difference is we, we don't murder our, our shit bag leaders in the Marine Corps. Uh, so, you know, we, we spent, um, you know, we spent the, the lion's share of our of our time in Somalia um, doing patrols, doing raids, and guarding our compound. Um, you know, an alternate duty for a day would be to guard a food distribution point. Uh, we all we all had our turn doing those. Uh, you know, and that was probably the 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 time where I got to see the most suffering because those are the people that were you know seeking out the food. Um, you know, we would, that we would distribute. So, uh, uh, but yeah, we spent all our time doing that. And, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about Somalia and, um, but that, that's sort of the gist of it. You know, we, we saw things that we'll never forget. And, uh, so, uh, you know, my group ended up coming home when the first portion of the, uh, the resolution, uh, it was, we were Unisom 1. And then when that charter ended, I'm not, probably not using the right 
the right terminology, but UNISOM 2 started after that. And that was when the, the United Nations was, was taking over. Uh, but we, we were basically tasked with getting most of the weapons off the street. Um, I don't know if you know that, um, General, um, Mohammed Farah Adid, one of the clan leaders, his son was a Marine. Did you know that? I did not know. So, uh, Mohammed Farah Adid, uh, he was the leader of the, the clan who had control of Mogadishu or most of Mogadishu. And he was, uh, you know, he was embroiled with the, the, the Rangers in October of, of 93 uh, and all that. But, uh, his son, uh, basically was raised, I believe in the Los Angeles area. Um, couple years older than me, so maybe born in 69. He was part of the, I don't know what unit he was in, but he was in the first Marine Division and he was a sergeant. And a lot of people attribute the relatively low amount of fighting we did with clans to the fact that Adid's son was with us. That's fascinating. When our mission ended, or that first phase, and we all went back, he stayed and later became the president of Somalia. So it's worth some, worth some research, but um, I, he wasn't in my unit. I did not know him personally or, or ever meet him, actually, but um, there was that connection, which is very, very odd to have that happen. We, um, we actually had um, a, couple, a couple specific missions targeted at getting uh, General Adid that I was a part of. I remember participating in some of those when um, President Clinton had, had ordered that had that done. We were not able to get him. Um, but in, he, you know, he, he survived. He ended up getting killed in the late 90s, but um, uh, he survived all that. So you know, we, uh, we did our mission, you know, and we came home. And uh, I think a lot of us were, my unit had participated in the Gulf War. So a lot of the guys had already been in the Gulf War and guys were fucking tired. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of fighting. There was, you know, um, a lot of blowing off steam when we got home. And I was a pretty much a short timer when I got home. So, um, you know, I think the United States in general had learned a little something from the Vietnam War because when we came back, we were not ignored. You know, there was someone at the airport and, you know, there was a, uh, maybe not like the Gulf War, but there were, there were people lining the, the route from the airport for us. There were people to receive us, you know, so that was a, a good feeling, you know, um, to have that, um, but, you know, ever since then, there's a lot of us that feel like uh, Somalia has not been recognized. I think a lot of us, uh, that's probably why we, we stick to each other, because we have that support from within. Uh, it wasn't World War II. It wasn't Vietnam. So people aren't naturally going to know what we did. But, you know, that's why we do things like having a, um, a 30th anniversary commemoration uh, on December 9th. And... We're going to do a moment of silence. It'll be virtual, um, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 9th. We'll have a, a moment of silence. And, um, you know, it's an opportunity for us to think about 
that happened. It was part of our life. It was a place our country sent us. Um, and we don't want to forget that. You're right. As I mentioned before, right? Labeling it as a humanitarian mission, people assume that it was peaceful. People assume that everything went fine, right? But Marines died here. There are two Marines that were killed, 15 that were wounded. It's, they deserve recognition, right? And just pushing Somalia to the back, it's, yeah. it's a disservice for you and for these other Marines who had to face this danger, had to face how to smell these dead bodies every day, right? Worry about the flies getting on your food, um, going on these night patrols, taking pop shots by, by snipers, right? It, it's yeah. and facing yeah. 50,000 men armed with tanks and artillery and these other weapons that you normally don't see from your, your typical insurgent. You, you have a Facebook page for this group, right? We have a Facebook page. It's a, it's a closed Facebook page for, uh, people that, that qualify for membership, but we do have a, a, a website. Um, I'll send you a link for that, but it's um, Marine Somalia Veterans Association. Oh, I'm going to mess it up. I'll, I'll have to send it to you so you can, um, you can put that, you know, make that available for your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure to post that. And if there's any Marines who did serve in Somalia, they, they could join on that website. Yes, they can contact us through the website. Uh, one of the things maybe your viewers or your listeners that might be interested in if they want to learn a little bit more about the, the Somalia mission is when they, if they could visit that website, um, you, you'll post it uh, on your page. But um, we have some information like veteran stories. Uh, quite a few members have written their own stories about their experiences there. Uh, you can read those. There's a timeline of events. Uh, we also put a press release out there this morning that gives a little uh, information about the mission as well. So, um, you know, those are all things to learn a little bit more. And we also have a, like one of the, one of the things I like about your your podcast is you do a really good job of showing um, your references. Uh, so we we put some references on our web page, too. So if you want to read some books um, about it, you can do that, too. But, uh, you know, all in all, um, you know, the United States lost 22 uh, men over in Somalia. Uh, Pakistan lost 24, India 12, Malaysia and Belgium 1, and Italy 5. So it wasn't, it wasn't a cost-free, uh, you know, endeavor for the world to, to help the Somalis. Um, one thing that is pretty universal about a, a lot of the, the people in our group is, We've all, all felt like maybe we didn't get enough gratitude from the Somalians themselves. Um, you know, there was, it wasn't a war zone. Um, so, you know, maybe it's, it's hard to express that, but we never really felt very appreciated. Um, uh, but we do know that our efforts, um, you know, through our partnership with our country, you know, with our partner countries and our, and our, and our resources from uh, the United States, Hundreds of thousands of people were saved from starvation um, or from the displacement at that time. Uh, and it's something that we can definitely uh, be proud of. So let me ask you this. Did you, so the first Marine killed in Somalia, and I want to see the first service member, was PFC Domingo Arroyo. And he was with, uh, I believe, headquarters 11th Marines. Did you know him? He actually was in, in my platoon. Uh, yes, I did know him. Um, uh, it was a very, it was a very sad, um, 
a very sad day for 311 when he got killed that night. Uh, he was on a patrol with his squad and my squad was on the, on guard that night. So we could see the, the firefight and the explosions from our vantage point. Uh, I remember the, the night of that firefight, I was with, um, uh, uh, Hartman, uh, we used to call him Beaker. And, uh, it was the first time I ever saw, um, flashlights. There was these in the windows, we would see these like almost Morse code kind of messages going back and forth. And we thought that was so weird. I'd never noticed it before. Um, we'd only been there less than two weeks. And, um, when the firefight started, it was, it was maybe a half a mile from our position on a, on a roof overlooking the airport compound. And I just remember seeing the, the, the shooting and stuff going on and the explosions going on. And, um, all these people, all these Somalis were starting to run at us towards our, our guard posts. And I, I remember some, some staff sergeant appeared out of nowhere. Like, you know, I think he thought we, we were going to start opening up on him or something. <laughs> I mean, these were obviously civilians and, uh, some other one, some other officer appeared out of nowhere. I don't know where the fuck they came from because we were on a roof. Uh, and he sort of calmed everything down and had us, you know, don't shoot at them. <laughs> you know, they're, they're obviously civilians, but I just remember that chaos, you know, of, of hearing the explosions. And I think the explosions were, um, one of the guys was shooting a 203, um, a, gr- a grenade launcher trying to, to suppress a machine gun that was shooting the squad. I think that's where those explosions came from, but I do remember, I can still see in my mind's eye, the, that bright white, you know, coming from that, that alleyway they were in. But that's where, that's where he was, um, he was involved in that. And, and out of respect for the family who I'm, I've become close to some of the members, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into a lot of the details about that, but you know, it did, it did cost him his life. And, um, uh, I, I believe his brother, uh, his, his whole family is very, uh, very deep, um, uh, military service. He had a brother in the army that was there, or uh, actually, I think he had two, two, uh, two family members. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to get the details wrong. One, one brother was in the army who later served over in Somalia and another was currently in Somalia, but with, with the, the Navy. So it, it just a crazy, um, a crazy instance that they, they were all there, you know, but uh, he had Domingo had spent some time in this part of the country. I, I uh, he had lived with some relatives in Pontiac, and that's how I know some of his family. I actually work in, in the city of Pontiac, so uh, I've got gotten to know some of them in the last few years, and um, you know, just to be friends with them and things like that. That's it. That says a lot, right? That's a uh, Semper Fidelis there. Always faithful. You know, we, we, we take care of each other. Um, you know, uh, again, I don't want to say too much, but, um, it turns out that, um, he had a child, uh, the woman he was with, uh, he didn't know she was pregnant. I don't think he ever knew she was pregnant 
because he had died, but um, he had a child that they named Domingo Jr. So, you know, that, that legacy still lives. Um, and I've, you know, reached out to him <clears throat> over the past few years and I would like to meet him someday. But he has a, he has a lot of uncles, <laughs> a few hundred uncles out here that, that would care about him too. He was supposed to be, he was supposed to get out of the Marine Corps in April of 92, but they kept him in for Somalia. I know, I know he was a short timer. I, I, I know he was a short timer. Uh, he had been a goal in the Gulf War and, and, uh, he was definitely a short timer. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's a shame as you, as you get older and, um, you know, other, other, other of your listeners who have been in wars or lost people when they were young, it, it's sweeter as you get older because, you know, uh, you've had, you've had children or you, now you have grandchildren and you've experienced so much of the beauty that life offers and they never got to do that, you know? Um, but as I remember, I, uh, I, I met an old, uh, older Vietnam veteran years ago and, and, uh, I asked him about that because he lost many friends in Vietnam and, and his consolation was, um, you know, instead of it being a painful thing for him, uh, he, he knows, he knows for certain that they're resting with God. That's his, that's his consolation that they're, they're now at peace and they don't know any of the, uh, human suffering that we have. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take that too. That's a, that's a good point there. As, at least from my experience, as I aged, I start to understand the definition of sacrifice a lot more. You know, yes. I didn't realize it when I was sure. 19, 20, 21 years old, but. Yes, it's, a, it's the, the the, the most one of the most pro- profound things that I could think of is to to have to die so young, leave such a such a hole for them and their and their families. I can't even begin to fathom it, uh, but only just to feel some 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 empathy for them and love. Yeah, absolutely. Just to give recognition to the other Marine who was killed in Somalia was Lance Corporal Tony uh, Bartello um, from Wilberton, Oklahoma. Yes, Anthony B- Botello. It was with one seven, correct? I believe so. Um, a lot of a lot of one seven guys are in our Somalia group, and his name comes up. Um, uh, obviously, I didn't know him. Uh, I did actually deployed with that unit um, before, but uh, didn't know him personally or anything. So, does your association have get-togethers often, reunions? COVID kind of put a damper on that for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, we, we've, we've talked in, as a, in general in our group about having a reunion and there's a lot, there's a lot of guys that are interested in it. And I think what, once we get through having your unit reunions, having a general Somali reunion isn't the highest priority, but it, it's something that we, we hope to do someday. Um, you know, occasionally we'll do, uh, you know, we'll, we'll develop some kind of, uh, uh, we'll do challenge coins and things like that. And it sort of tries to keep some cohesion to our group because, you know, we are essentially a virtual association, um, an active one, but still virtual nonetheless. And I think a lot of guys would appreciate to, you know, have some one-on-one or, you know, we could, uh, you know, have a speaker and, and things like that. Uh, that's yet to, yet to happen, but we hope that will happen someday. 
Yeah, you know, we're we're at the stage. I was just talking to a, a friend of mine today, and you know, if we if we equate our service to World War II, you know, we're currently in the seventies, in the nineteen seventies. You know, so it wasn't that long ago, but long enough to give us some perspective on, you know, what we did, um, maybe how that formed who we are today. Um, it, it just becomes. Um, you know, all the more important to have contact with those who experienced it. Uh, eventually, we'll all be dead and there won't be a Marine Somalia Veterans Association, but, you know, it, it'll serve us while we're here. And uh, if it means not being lonely for a night because you had someone to talk to, well, we've done something. Or if it means preserving a, a small nugget of history, uh, then it's accomplished something. So, uh, in that sense, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, me and Scott were able to call it that. And, and here it is, you know, to this day. This is important, right? If, if it's just, it gives you guys, it gives all Marines, right? It's, we lose a lot through time. Your comparison to the world wars is a, it's a, a great comparison, right? Cause you, as time goes by, people die. You start losing this history. You start losing this, this knowledge that is in your head, that is in these Marines head that served in Somalia in all these conflicts and all these wars, right? It's, it's something that I love talking about in the podcast. I, the, the dates and the events are fine, but the, the human experience, the, what an individual Marine went through in, in this time of extreme stress and violence and, and, and shit that most people will never experience in their entire lives, right? Mm -hmm. It's getting that down and documenting it and getting it on paper for future Marines to see is big because just reading journal entries from Marines and the American Revolution, right? Or the Marines and, and, and the War of 1812 or the Marines that marched on to Tripoli. What I've found is we're all the same, right? So Chesty's quote of old breed, new breed, that is accurate as hell. There, There's a Marine is a Marine. Yep. The things we complain about, the things we experience, the things we, we feel, it's it doesn't change within generation, right? And I'm not sure if that's a human thing or, or specifically to Marines, but it's, it's, it's something that is embedded in every Marine that I've read, right? Every journal entry, every war report, you could be talking to a Marine today and it's the same thing. And that's, that's powerful. Right. And I yeah. think there's, there's something to understanding that that is big to understanding, to understanding our lineage, understanding what other Marines went through. And even though times has changed, enemies have changed, weapons have changed. The Marine is essentially the same, right? Just the thought process and the mentality yeah. of the Marine is, is the same. And that, that fascinates me. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think uh, I think what what holds us together, and you probably love history more than me, but I love it a lot. And I think what it what really binds us together as Marines is we're taught almost from the start history of our Corps, and at least the guys I've met in my own experiences, our drill instructors inspired us by showing us that those guys who stormed the sands of Iwo Jima or 
uh, you know, survived the, cho- the chosen reservoir. They were the same guys as we're the same guys as them. And that sort of makes us keep living on. And, you know, we're not some supernatural people, but we think we are because we're connected to those heroes and fucking let's, let's keep it going. You know, um, I'm not so naive to think that, you know, I'm better as a human being over an army guy, but you know, we've, we've really promoted that, uh, among ourselves. We kind of believe it, you know, uh, that we're somehow supernatural or something. I don't know. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just interesting how we got connected to that history early on in our, Marine Corps careers. And I, I just think that's so cool because I've always loved history. And I, I joined a fighting organization who believes that history is important. It's a big one. It's something that's often overlooked, right? It's something that dates back all the way to William Ward Burroughs in 1798, when new Marines were coming in, right? The United States Marine Corps was reestablished. William Ward Burroughs instilled into the hearts of minds of those Marines, the traditions of continental Marines, right? And a lot of what he put in place is still practiced today. And it goes all the way to 1921 when Lejeune issued the order to celebrate the Marine Corps birthday, right? So before November 10th, it was July 11th. So it was to celebrate the United States Marine Corps. But you have a Marine historian, uh, Edwin McClellan, who went up to Lejeune and said, we need to incorporate the Marines from the American Revolution, bring in these continental Marines into our tradition. And that's when the birthday was changed. And to this day, we celebrate it. Today, this year was the 101st year we have honored Lejeune's general order to recognize those Marines. And I think that is, that is what separates us from any other branch, right? It's, yeah. it's just this camaraderie, right? Just, yeah this brotherhood that we have with each other, the love that we have for a Marine that has, that was in, in the, during the war of 1812, right? During world war one, during Somalia, during Iraq and Afghanistan, we all relate to each other. And, and I guarantee if you have an, a, a continental Marine with you today, it'll be the same conversation, right? You might have some old timey language, but the, the conversation will be the same. The mentality was going to, is going to be the same and you'll fight for each other just the same. And that's, that is the power of the Marine Corps. That is something that a lot of people don't recognize, but that's where our strength lies. It's the tradition. It's understanding where we come from and the respect that we have for the Marines who came before us. It's big. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think we also have a better PR machine too. Oh, that, that does not hurt. <laughs> yeah, the Marine Corps does a good job with their public relations. Yeah. There's actually, I got in trouble for that on Instagram. Uh, my post was flagged. It wasn't even offensive, right? So during the 19th, I'm going off on a tangent here, but during the 1970s, like, you know, the poster, right? We don't promise you a rose garden, that, that famous poster. Yeah. The whole reason that came into existence was because of the counterculture and uh, the 70s, right? So the Vietnam War was going on and uh, American citizens were against the military. They were against war. And the Navy and the Army and the Air Force, they were all promising you these great things, right? Trying to get people to come to their services, to recruit these uh, civilians into their services, trying to uh, to blend in with the, with the culture, right? But the Marine Corps was like, no, we're going to stick to our guns. This is who we are. If you want to join us, come join us. But if not, we don't need you, right? And that's where we don't promise you a rose garden comes from. And that was 
it worked. It was one of, I think during that year, um, they won multiple, the, the, the ad agency won multiple awards for, uh, their commercials and their posters. And, uh, it's, it's big. Yeah. But <laughs> you're right. The PR is big. You know, you know, with the, with the PR side of it, it, it wasn't until I read American Caesar where I dealt, you know, delved into the Pacific War and the army specific to MacArthur that I realized that the army actually did stuff in the Pacific. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you believe the Marines, we were the only ones there. And I, I, th- I just thought that was amazing that, that that happened in our history. Yeah. The army played a big role too, but the, the Marines, they were the stars of the show. We had the flag of Iwo Jima, you know, we had the, the Mount Sarbachi and, you know, all those stuff that we, they were, you know, iconic on their own, but we, we used them to the max. Yeah, the, the Marines were known for, geez, just the struggles, right? They had some intense battles. Yeah, we're, we're actually digging into that now on the podcast, World War II. Yeah. Well, I, I've been enjoying with, I've been enjoying your, um, you know, your World War One. I, I, I'm getting through Bella Wood now and, and, uh, you know, it's bringing back some, I'm trying to th- think of some of the places that I visited when I, when I walked those battlegrounds. Um, you know, I, I have to get through your pronunciation to, place them on the on the map i'm I'm just kidding on your pronunciation (laughs) yeah i'm horrible with the french yeah well kevin this was fantastic right so i I really appreciate you reaching out this was a great conversation where can people go i know you mentioned the website on facebook are you anywhere else where can people go if they're interested Uh, you know i would i would invite people to visit us on the web and i'm gonna um I, i keep i keep asking your your viewers to uh refer to your your web page but I, I would uh tell them to go to uh, marine somalia vets association dot home dot blog and that's a um that's on wordpress but the, our that's where our, our website is uh it's a public website it, it's uh they can go and visit it and check out our history uh veteran stories uh, background uh, if they want to become a member, if they served in Somalia, or if they were uh, an FMF corpsman, or were attached to a Marine unit, then they are welcome to join. There's no cost. Uh, we do vet members, so uh, there's we're at, we ask them to fill out something, a, a little form. Uh, we don't check DD-214s or anything like that. If you're bullshitting us, we can tell, yeah. believe me. Uh, they can contact us, and occasionally we do offer you know, uh, things like patches and things like that if people want to support, but it's completely a nonprofit entity. Um, we just basically pay for the cost of whatever we're, we're developing. But, uh, yeah, check us out. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a note and, uh, we, we definitely appreciate your interest in, in, in your, your uh, listeners interest as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have those links up on the description page so everyone could find it easily. I love that you're including corpsmen in this. I think they're often overlooked, but they're definitely a big part of the Marine Corps family. Absolutely, yes. Uh, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, we, we look forward to uh, being able to uh, spread the word about the history of the Marine Corps um, and podcast and, and show our our new members, uh, you know, what the good things that you're doing here. I appreciate that, Kevin. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah. Well, God bless you. Uh, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving. Uh, I will follow up with you. I'll send you an email and a little intro on me. And, and, uh, if you have any other questions, let me know. Sounds good. Thanks, Kevin.
Brother, thank you so much. You have a great one. Yeah, you do the same. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.